afternoon and welcome to the boldness on 3CR. My name is Raphael, the virologist. Caleb, the boldness is about standing up for your human rights instead of waiting for some well-meaning person to give them to you. Now it's Wednesday the 17th of May. We've had a very unusual week or two. We've had the federal budget. That means it's very, very appropriate. Without further ado, I'll introduce our guest for tonight, Kristen O'Connell, who is the co-coordinator of the Anti-Poverty Centre. Good evening. Kristen, how are you today? Hi, Raphael. I'm, I'm okay, thank you. It's been a very big week. I went to Canberra, which... Coming up to the federal budget, what were the Anti-Poverty Centre's expectations, hopes and dreams, what it might do? I think our expectations were very different to our hopes and dreams. We had incredibly low expectations because the government had been pretty clear for a very long time that it didn't have plans to do a lot of the things that we would have hoped for. There's so many areas that are related to breaches of human rights or working to attain human rights and have our human rights upheld. There's the really obvious things like making sure everyone has their right to social security and to have their basic needs met, and that would have meant an awful lot more being done on income support payments, which is lifting rates to get people out of poverty, but also so many people living on this continent can't access a payment even though they need one. And so there's human rights being denied to people. We also would have wanted to see an end to mutual obligations, which is the requirement people have to get their payment, which puts people's payment under threat, an end to income control programs where people have their welfare payment. Part of it is put on a card that the government kind of controls how you spend it. There's obviously a huge amount in the disability space. It's really hard to know where to start with disability, actually, because The NDIS has been very worried about what comes for the NDIS. I think it wasn't as bad as we were fearing. The final thing that was important around disability was some announcements around the quartered employment, which people might know as Australian Disability Enterprises or as sheltered workshops where disabled folks uh, work, primarily folks with an intellectual disability, and get paid as little as about $2.50 an hour. So there's potentially promising signs on that front. Our expectations were very low. What we wanted was all Centrelink payments above the poverty line. Everyone who needs to access a Centrelink payment able to get one. No threats or control on those Centrelink payments. So that's mutual obligation. Of course, we would like to see housing, you know, real investment in housing and accessible housing. My personal expectation of the budget, well, I didn't actually have an expectation because I'm a cynic. I'm going to put it in terms of from a disability perspective. Let's say with the unemployment benefit, it has been raised. I've got a big challenge for the federal government. The unemployment benefit, for example, 
was basically frozen for about 25 years. How does $38 a fortnight apparent raise? That's not an indexation based on a mathematical model of inflation, given that it was essentially frozen. It wasn't keeping up to start with. And in the last year, we have had around, I would estimate, about 6 to 7% run of inflation based on my calculations. I've actually done a classic example, long last milk at a supermarket, home brand. About 12 months ago, it was $1.70 for one litre. Now it is $2.00 per litre. Now, that is an increase of 50%. I don't care how they calculate inflation. So, we have got approximately a 10% or less than a 10% raise people who've got an unemployment benefit. But let's face it, it's been, the rates for unemployment benefits have been frozen the past 25 years. We're talking about a one-year thing increase unless we're paying 1993 prices. How does that sound to you, Kristen? Yes, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. One of the big problems, so folks might not realise quite how bad it is, the job seeker payment is about $250 a week below the poverty line. It's about $450 a week below the minimum wage. And the government's talking about a $20 a week increase. So it doesn't even get us 10% closer to the poverty line from where we were. People are getting about 330 bucks a week. So obviously they've done very little to address that gap. But as you say, the other problem is that that gap actually doesn't even account for the very extreme cost increases that we're all bearing over the last six to 12 months. For example, as you noted, the lowest cost grocery items that we rely on and are actual essentials, they go up faster than the headline inflation figure that the Bureau of Statistics puts out. Things like rent are also going up much faster. So I don't know about other folks, but I copped a $100 a week increase in my rent last July. Lots of people have been telling me stories about rent increases of 20, 50, and $100 a week. So $20 a week for folks on job seekers is already eaten up by increases that have already happened in our costs of living. Um, I'm on the disability support pension myself. Obviously, there's hundreds of thousands of disabled folks trapped on job seeker, but even on the disability support pension, it's still below the poverty line. Every payment is below the poverty line, and all of us are trying to make these very meager payments stretch further and further, and they're just not doing it. And so, yes, I think it was quite insulting for the government to claim that they were helping people on the lowest incomes and doing cost of living relief um, when we know, like, how much these costs have gone up. And, of course, they also said that, oh, well, we've given a 15% increase to rent assistance. 15% of nothing isn't very much. So rent assistance for someone in a share house is $50 a week. So getting a 15% increase doesn't even take it up. Uh, to, what, $60 a week? So, oh, sorry, it does. It takes us to 65 or something. But it's not $58 a week, right? It's going to be what it is, roughly. And again, if you can find anywhere to rent where that is a big part of your rent, I don't know. I think you are in 1994 prices. Well, if I, could, I can find somewhere to rent up at that. It's called On the Banks of the Murray River in a Tent Without yeah. Electricity Phone and I'll have a lithium battery, which I can charge at the library, and I can actually live at that price, but I don't think it gets pretty cold up there. Perfectly. Exactly, and that's what's happening to folks, right? Yeah, bingo. That's the first problem. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to go into this 
little other hot issue because there's lots of nonsense that's been happening around housing, for example. What housing? Is there housing here? Well, apparently no one in Parliament seems to understand we are going to have a debate on how it should be implemented, when it should be implemented, how it should be implemented. What are the anti-poverty thoughts on housing in relation to the federal budget? Yeah, so we actually put in a submission to the inquiry into the government's proposal for this Housing Australia Future Fund and newsflash, we think it's terrible. It's a very bad idea for a couple of reasons. One is the kind of, the number of homes they're talking about, the amount of money they're talking about are just nowhere near enough. But all of that aside, this idea of taking money and investing it in shares and, and then taking the interest they earn off investing it in shares and then taking that money and giving it as incentive to developers to build lower-cost homes is not a very efficient way to get low-cost homes. So what we have said is trash the fund. Doesn't It shouldn't exist. The government should be acquiring homes because actually there are a lot of homes already. We don't have a big problem with supply of homes. We have a big problem with people hoarding homes, having too many homes and not wanting to share them. And then we have proposals that acquire existing homes, build homes, and that for building homes, every bit of public land that is used for to build homes on should be public housing. And then we have uh, another part of that proposal is that every home that is built by the government should be meeting the platinum accessibility standards under the um, livable housing design guidelines. So that's the kind of ambition we would like to see. Again, the budget, they talked about a little rent assistance increase and this fund. There was practically nothing um, on housing. And we know that in five years, if we continue with this plan, we're going to have an even bigger shortage of social and affordable homes than we have now. The plan they have is really bad, but they haven't given any indication of improving it, unfortunately. Well, Kristen, I'm feeling very, very um, silly about the whole situation. I think there is a plan in place. We're all supposed to live on those nuclear submarines. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is really, really distressing to hear the government say they can't afford to do things to support those of us who really need it and need help urgently to have enough money to live and a secure place to live and a safe place to live. But they can, yeah, I think someone was calculating it for the tax cuts. It's $25 a day in tax cuts compared to $2.80 a day in job seeker increase. And the submarines are incredibly expensive. And I think anyone who gives it a second thought, you go, hang on, Submarines in a few decades, 12 of them, is this whole threat of us being attacked is real. I don't think 12 submarines in a few decades' time is going to do much about it, right? So what are we spending four or $500 billion on? And it's, it's all these political games going on that don't affect our lives other than to deprive us of the supports that we need. So, yes, it is, it is really, again, we always say it's a political choice to keep people in poverty and to keep us out of secure homes. It is now time for us to play some community service announcements. Then the boldness will be back with Kirsten O'Donnell, who is the co-coordinator of the Anti 
Poverty Center. Raytheon's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profit. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Pick up your phone while you're driving and it's a $555 fine and four demerit points. Distracted drivers can be caught anywhere, anytime. A message from the TAC. Drive safely for everyone. Welcome back to the boldness on 3CR 855 AM. Now, Kirsten, we're having a very, very interesting discussion. So far, we have discovered that there is indeed a slight indexation increase for people on the unemployment benefit. We have discovered that we can spend around four or $500 billion on nuclear submarines, but we can't house people in there. And we have just had a quick look at tax cuts of about $25 per day, but the increase to people who are on settlement benefits is about $2.50 a day. So we're doing pretty well so far from an analytical perspective. Let's get on to the really, really good stuff here. Because from a disability perspective, that I noticed that in the federal budget, there was a big thing about excise to actually eradicate smokers from the community. The facts are that when people have a disability, let's say if they're under the, in the mental health system, for what it's worth, and I could actually do a whole year's show with no repeats, broadcasting 366 days a year about the mental health system and lack of it, when people are actually in the hospitals, more often than not, they actually happen uh, to smoke. So here we are. I am wondering, is it quite possibly, do you actually think it should be a rebate for people who have got a disability who are in the psychiatric wards that they actually could get a rebate there so they could actually uh, continue to smoke if my memory serves me correctly, there was a campaign quite a number of years ago which gave people who were in the psychiatric um, units when they were having some sort of treatment where they actually could smoke because the government in there with them decided that we're going to take that away from people. What are the anti-poverty centres' thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's really frustrating again that 
you know, I don't know um, how many, these are some slightly wonky terms, but I'll just briefly explain. So when we talk about the tax system in Australia, some people might have heard that we're supposed to have a progressive tax system. And what that's supposed to mean is that people with lots of money pay a higher percentage of their income in tax than people on the lowest incomes. And the opposite of that is a regressive tax, meaning that everyone's paying pretty similar amounts of tax. People often think about just one type of tax. They think about income tax on payment from employment. But we're all paying taxes in all these other ways that are very regressive. So GST is a regressive tax because we all pay the same amount no matter how much money we have. Likewise for this tobacco tax, and it's the same with alcohol. It's also similar with fuel, where people on the lowest incomes are bearing the greatest cost of those tax increases. And as you say, lots of people smoke for really complicated reasons that is an important part of the supports that they have. And when people have no money, there's lots of stress to, to manage and to cope with. And one of the ways that people do that is through relying on substances. Whether we want to or not, that's just the thing that happens for some, for some people, okay? So the government is very paternalistic and it feels like, okay, well, we're just going to decide that only bad people do that and therefore you have to be rich to be able to do it. So I think that the idea of a rebate is, is one option. It's a little bit more complicated than what I think could be done instead, which is just don't heavily tax these products and instead provide people with support to quit that don't involve um, taking all of their money, basically. So, you know, the rebate is kind of a, if that's all we can get, let's get it. But ultimately, what we want to try and do is unwind this idea that the best way to control people's behaviours is through taxing them in certain ways and instead get the government to invest in supportive programs that people can access if they want to and not be forced to. Right, and we're going to actually do a little crossover. National Disability Insurance Scheme. Apparently, they're looking at putting a cap of about 8% growth maximum on it. Words fail me. Seriously. How does this work in practice? Any thoughts on this one, Kirsten? Yeah, I think it's it's very scary. Um, I'm on the NDIS too, and I recently had my plan cut and my psychology sessions were cut by 75%. And I had to go to the administrative appeals tribunal to fight the NDIA to get my psych sessions back, which I did. And I think that goes to your question about how are they planning to achieve this cap? Because they don't have any information about whether it means restricting and reducing plans for people who are already on the NDIS. They haven't said whether it's about stopping new people getting on. They haven't said whether it's about kicking people who are on it off altogether. They have given no information about how they intend to do this. And meanwhile, all of this stuff is totally unrelated to what our support needs are. And so the government coming up with targets like this completely ignores our medical and other experts who, who have the information that's needed to make decisions about what our support should be. So it's very scary. I think the government is trying to talk about it like they're saying this, these big evil providers, and there are, we know that there are some providers that are just profiting from disability, 
but that's not what they're targeting. In terms, that's not what they're tackling, right? Like what they're doing is things like what happened to me and what's happening to many other people with flashing individual plans and hoping people won't fight back, which is what happened with RoboDebt. So back to that idea of standing up for our rights is we need to collectively defend the NDIS and say to the government it is not acceptable to be placing constraints on it that aren't related to what people's that mean like what people's support needs are won't be met. And also as individuals, it's unacceptable for you to use these tactics like you had in RoboDebt to try and reduce your costs without any actual policy behind that that informs it, you know? Yes, it's you've you've hit on some very, very kind of like touchy subjects for me there, uh, Christian, is that on a personal level, and it's my little good old rant which I do on the on the boldness, my disability perspective quite regularly, I was one of those people caught up there, despite the fact that I had actually had gone into the office about seven times back in the alleged years saying I wanted a calculation and I was told there was absolutely no problem. They produced no evidence and my debt was increased, I think it was seven times after they had done it. And I've been told that effectively it's all over. I don't, it's not actually over. I have got Asperger's syndrome. And in the words of my dear old mum, when she, oh, I was up, she said, Raph, you don't have a chip on your shoulder. You have the entire South American Amazon forest on there. And remember, every person who has pissed you off for all time, and that's my thoughts on robo-debt, and I won't see it, it's unlike I'll ever see a sense of compensation, because apparently that was the only year that the robo-debt actually happened to occur, which is insanity, and I have got no idea on how they figured that one out. And we're going to move on to that other one, to of National Disability Insurance Scheme, it is set up in such a way a person can't actually really apply for it because in my case, the documentation which I have from it, which was a very long report from a psychologist about 11 years ago, apparently is out of date. And to actually go through and do another assessment, I am looking at approximately about $10,000 to do the actual assessment to actually apply for something which I, see, which I probably should get, but I can't get because I can't access the documentation that actually do it, but apparently we can have nuclear submarines and I could be one of the torpedoes. That's how, like, it's one of these ways of, like, keeping the cost down is making it expensive to get on, right? So I'm in this incredibly, like, the the luck that I had is that someone in my life who had money saw how much I really needed access to the DSP and the NDIS, and that person said, I am going to show you solidarity and I'm going to pay for those medical reports because that's the thing that's stopping And the fact that you have to have the luck of either having your own money or knowing someone who has money who's willing to do that for you just shows how inequitable the schemes are, even though they say they're for everyone. When, it, when money itself is a barrier to access, they're not inequitable schemes, right, obviously. And so... There are many changes that we would like to see in the NDIS that are around, okay, can we pay for people's assessments? Can we pay um, or can we improve Medicare and not the kind of little tweaks they've made on Medicare, but really change Medicare so that we have free universal health care in this 
country, which would enable people to get their assessments for free. You know, this is the stuff that would actually practically help people in their life, but they're not even thinking about it. And, you know, like in terms of other stuff that they've kind of done, just back on your point around robo-debt, they're now going after people literally back to 1979. In this budget, they're accounting for $5 billion in debt they're hoping to get from about 1 million people going back that many decades. And this, it's very scary, right? We know that the kind of harms that it causes, even if it's just a little bit of stress, are really severe. But then, of course, it goes right up to some people taking their life. Um, so there's there's a lot going on with restricting people's access to support they need and then punishing people for having access to support. And your story is not an unusual one. I know many people who proactively tried to get Centrelink to identify or fix errors and then ended up with a debt. It's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty brutal. Well, Lisette, thank you very much for that. Very, very sadly, we've actually had this wonderful discussion which was about analysing the federal budget, which was basically a discussion about nothing but essentially what was wrong with it, which actually sums up, which was the federal budget. I might as well not have actually had it from a disability perspective. Thank you very much for your time, Kirsten. How did people get in contact with the Anti-Poverty Centre for more information? Thanks so much, Rafael. So um, the best place to find out information about us is our website, antipovertycentre.org. And we do a lot of um, updates and sharing information, primarily on Twitter. Um, so we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. But for lots of real-time updates, Twitter is the best place to look. Our handle there is at antipovertycent. If people wanted to talk to myself or my colleague Jay or get in touch with people who are involved in our work, they can message us uh, on social media or send an email to team at antipovertycentre.org. And that's on our website. Thanks very much for your time, Kirsten. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I actually love that hashtag, antipovertycent. And that's about what people, the people with disability got from the federal budget. Absolutely nothing. And one or two cent pieces were abolished decades ago. The Baltimore's would like to thank Kirsten O'Connell, co-coordinator of the Anti-Poverty Centre, for joining the Baltimore's, analysing the budget. Thank you very much for your time, Kirsten. The Baltimore's will be back on Wednesday, the 31st of May at 6 PM. Keep listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Let's go finish up with a song, Choices and Rights by Johnny Crescendo. Thank you very much.
choices in life. That's where we gotta find choices in life. In my life, I don't want no benefits. But today, from where we sit, I want choices in life. In life, I don't want you to speak for me. Just listen and then you see me want. Choices in life, in our lives. Choices in life. That's the way we gotta find. Choices in life, in our lives. I don't want your love. I don't need your peace. I want choices in life, in our lives. I don't need your guilt. I don't want your tears. I want choices in life.